it doesn't seem like many people have any excuses left. I mean, I don't know how many more studies need to come out that that vegan is a great answer for a lot of issues. People just get so hung up on their silly tradition. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saver. Hey, what's up? This is Jerry Saver, and you're listening to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show, the place to learn how it's done and get inspiration and ideas on how to get started with a successful plant-based business from the people who are out there doing just that, making the future more plant-based with their own brands and companies. Now, if you really want to get the best, most extensive overview of how this industry looks right now and what new opportunities are opening up in it, and make sure you don't miss Plant-Based Business Week. This is a week-long virtual event that we are putting on in September, and it's going to feature over 30 experts in the fields of plant-based foods, ethical fashion materials, startups and investment, marketing and branding, science and medicine, social media, everything you need to know to launch your own vegan brand, or simply get a really good look of what's happening in this space and what the future has in store. Registration for Plant-Based Business Week is free, and you can attend from anywhere in the world. So to sign up, just visit plantbasedbusinessweek.com and register with your name and email to reserve your seat for all the interviews that are coming out in September. And now, let's get on with today's episode. We're going to be talking, among other things, about a really cool and completely natural plant-based meat alternative that's been taking the world by storm. I'm talking about jackfruits, and I have to say that I'm a huge fan of it. So today, my guest is Dan Stackman, who's the founder and president of Upton's Naturals, and they've been the first brand to bring these jackfruit products to the U.S. and European markets, and as you will hear, they've been at least partially responsible for the huge popularity of jackfruit as well. But that's not even remotely all that they offer. When you check out their story, it's, it's pretty amazing to see how much they've grown. And one thing that really sets this company apart is that they have decided to keep it independently owned and not raise any capital from investors. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation and to hearing more about their business path. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. You're based in Chicago, which is not really the jackfruit growing area, but we'll, we'll get to that part a bit later. Um, first of all, I want to ask you something because I know that you, you went plant-based like decades ago. So how, how long have you actually been vegan? I've been vegan just about 25 years. Wow. I'm assuming that's way more than half your life, right? Yep. I was 15 at the time. So what, what was the reason that you decided to do this and what, what was it even like 25 years ago? You grew up in Chicago, right? If I understand yeah. correctly. Yeah. How, yeah. What was it like 25 years ago to go vegan? There? It was pretty bleak. There were not the same number of options that there are today. You know, we, we'd only have um, a couple of health food stores. You'd have to drive you know, even 20, 30 minutes to and they'd have one kind of soy milk and it was mostly chalk with uh, some other kind of fluids in an aseptic pack and um, you know even tofu was a was a rarity it took a lot just to 
find places to eat. In terms of restaurants, none of these fast food chains really had any options back then. Uh, you could get a bean and lettuce taco from Taco Bell, whereas today you can go to any number of those chains like Chipotle or Moe's and, and get something, you know, even in the middle of nowhere. And every major grocery store has a has a whole vegan section with, you know, dozens of vegan milks, meat alternatives and cheese alternatives and yogurt alternatives. It's just become incredibly easy. I'm assuming you did not turn vegan for the huge variety of foods and choices that you had. So what was your reason for making the switch? Primarily it was animal rights issues. The, the food part of it uh, was definitely not so much of an issue. But I will say that, you know, having gone vegan, it, it really started to open my eyes to other types of foods that I had never tried before, a lot of different ethnic dishes, but primarily animal rights. And then, of course, it's hard to deny the environmental impact of a vegan lifestyle. And then I suppose it's healthy for you as well, for the most part, if, if you do the right things. So was that, if, if that opened your, your eyes to the different food options, did that kind of start you on the path that ultimately led to, to Upwinds Naturals? Or did you imagine at 15 or 18 or any point back then that you, you might start your own vegan food brand? Certainly not. You know, I may have had passing thoughts of opening a restaurant or something on that level, but um, when I started Uptons, I had only made seitan one time previously, and it was from a box mix, and it I don't know how I could have the end result be so terrible, but it was essentially like a puffy bath sponge. It was quite embarrassing, but... Uh, you know, when I started the company, there was only one national brand that was making seitan in the U.S. There was nobody producing it in Chicago, for retail at least. Uh, there were a couple of restaurants that were making their own, and it was a favorite food of mine, and still is. So it just seemed like maybe I could take another stab at that and, and try to figure it out. And that's what we did. What were you doing professionally before Upton's got started? I would say that I was drifting quite a bit. I had started a company maybe a year, year and a half before Upton's that dealt with organic horticulture. And uh, that was maybe 2003 or four, And it was perhaps a little ahead of its time. I mostly was trying to deal on the wholesale side of the business. I found it very difficult to communicate with the people that I needed to try to sell on the idea of organics. So, you know, I, I tried that and I went with like a, a direct-to-consumer approach. And also it was very difficult just trying to convince people back then that they need to drop everything they're doing and pay two, three times the price was just was very difficult. <laughs> so that was your previous business. And then did, did you just think that since you like Satan, 
other people should like it as well? And Essentially, yeah. I'd had some various office jobs over the years and, and done different things. And, um, you know, I, I, I was always trying to figure out a way to start my own business, do something that, you know, I could enjoy personally and thought that would benefit other people as well. So, you know, I had the organics business. I also bought and sold modern design. So I, I would find a, a chair or a light fixture or something in the garbage at an estate sale or a thrift store, you know, anywhere. And then, you know, at the time, the modern market was exploding quite a bit. So I could sell a chair and cover a month's mortgage or something. But, uh, you know, that wasn't a sustainable business either, at least not in my eyes. So I had the idea to do Satan. I thought that it could involve activism, and uh, I definitely enjoyed it. So I started with a shared kitchen. We sold to uh, a handful of restaurants just to kind of prove the product, make sure that we weren't the only ones that thought it was any good. Once that proved to be a success, we saved up some money and got our own space. I also, I might be jumping ahead a little bit here with some of the questions, but uh, I also took out a no-doc home equity line of credit, which at the time was a very popular thing. For anyone familiar with the crash of the housing market in 2008, I believe, um, those no-doc loans were, were largely responsible for that. So I always like to joke and say I, I must have been, you know, one of three people actually paying back the loans. But, uh, yeah, I, I took out that second mortgage on my house and just invested it into packaging and different equipment and the build-out of our own space for, I want to say it was just under $40,000. And, you know, from there we started selling through a couple local distributors and at Whole Foods and Seven Stores. And, you know, once we kind of proved ourselves there, we got into the 20 in the Chicago area and then the 40 in the region and just kind of took it region by region from there. So at, at this point, it's mostly just Satan that you're selling? Correct. Do you remember where you actually learned about Satan? That is a great question. The first time that I had it was probably at a restaurant called Blind Faith in Evanston, which is a suburb of Chicago. I'm pretty sure that must have been it. I'm not sure. You, you probably know much more about Satan than I do. It's something that I think originates in, in the East, right? Yes. I don't want to say it's a debate, but you know, I've read different things over the years that it's Chinese or it's Japanese. There's a story about a Buddhist leader that gave up meat, and he had asked the chef to come up with something that was similar to meat because he missed it so much, and Satan was born. That one's interesting because I remember it was probably more like 20, 25 years ago, my, my parents were making it at home. So that was about the time when my mom decided she was going vegetarian, and they that time there were no ready-made packages or anything, so they were doing it the very old-fashioned way where you would just 
take flour, just regular wheat flour, and then you would make the dough, and then you would wash it out and wash it out and wash it out until all that was left was, was the gluten, which basically gives you seitan, and then you have to marinate that and, and firm it up. You're probably using a much more advanced process than that. Yeah, it's a little more streamlined, <laughs> but I have produced it that way a handful of times myself. On a large scale, I wouldn't say that that's the most sustainable method. And you're also washing away all of that starch. So for our production, we purchase essentially a, a pre-rinsed flour. So we use vital wheat gluten, which already has had the starch separated. And that's done with a water process where the starch, the bran, and the protein are all separated and then used for different industries, essentially, or different, different purposes. So nothing's lost. Just in case anyone's not familiar with seitan, that's basically pure wheat gluten that is made into a dough and then further processed or flavored. And, and the texture really does resemble meat quite a lot. So one thing regarding this is um, with all the Satan products that you have in your line, do you find that the gluten-free trend has affected your sales at all? Not at all. Our sales continue to grow every year. You know, for a while when we would do consumer events, you know, there's always a handful of people that comment on it, but uh, it certainly hasn't had any noticeable impact that we've been able to tell. So it's hard to say because we were still a growing company during that big peak of gluten-free becoming a thing. I don't know if we would be the best judge. Maybe you want to ask like a, you know, like an international or national bread company how their sales took a hit. But um, in terms of seitan and just vegan products, I, I don't think it really had that great of an impact. That's pretty cool to hear because, I mean, I personally don't really worry about gluten, but I know that probably for every person who actually is intolerant, there are three or four people who just feel a bit more uncomfortable after consuming gluten. But with all the publicity that, that it's gotten, you, you probably know that you can stick a gluten-free label on pretty much anything now and, and the sales are going to go up. So I was just wondering if, if it's working the other way as well for a product that's 100% gluten. And I'm really glad to hear that it's not. Yeah, I mean, I try not to follow the data too carefully. I mean, I've heard uh, gluten-free has been softening a bit. We actually, you know, with the, with the jackfruit that we'll get to shortly, it was almost painful for us to write gluten-free on the box. <laughs> but I don't think the fact that it's gluten-free has that much to do with its popularity. It's also just so unique in, in the category. Exactly. Before we get to the jackfruit, there's one thing that I really wanted to ask you, and it basically tracks back right to the beginning when, when you started the company. Why Uptons? Like, where's the name come from and who is Upton, the, the mustached guy on, on your box? Has he been with you from, from the beginning or is he a more recent addition to the company? He has been with us from the beginning. He's our best 
salesperson. However, he is fictional. You know, we wanted to create a brand that hopefully people could easily identify with, you know, a name and a face. I did not want that name or face to be my own. We had some general ideas of the aesthetic that we were going for, and, um, you know, the name just seemed like a good fit. It's it's unique enough that we're not going to run into another Upton Satan or any other food product, most likely, and it just kind of fit with, uh, with what we had in mind. Yeah, it's, at the same time, it's slightly wacky and non-traditional, but it, it fits really well with, with the persona on, on the box, and it definitely makes it stand out in, in the cooler. When, when you look at the products, you immediately recognize the, the Upton's natural products. So now the, the big thing that I was talking about before, when you went to jackfruit products, or at the point when you started with jackfruit, did you have anything besides um, gluten as, as the source of your um, meat alternatives, or was it gluten only, or seitan? Yeah, we were only doing seitan at the time. We did also have a line of uh, prepared foods that we made just for the Chicago market and the Midwest Whole Foods region. And since this is an entrepreneur show, just want to point out that sometimes it's okay to, to stray from whatever your original business plan was. When we started with the Satan, you know, with that slow growth model like that, it became a challenge to find enough work for full-time employees. So because the product is largely made to order, we might have a week that was really, really busy and everybody's in overtime. And then the next week it's, you know, hey, uh, you got anything for me to do? So we took on this uh, this project of doing wraps and sandwiches for just a couple of Whole Foods stores, and that kind of blossomed into like a region-wide program with them that helped not only build the brand, but retain employees while we were growing at that, that slower pace, because it was a more consistent stream of income. Yeah, so just, just to give it a bit of a time frame, what, what year are we talking here, and how, how big is your business at this point before you decide to to start working with jackfruit the jackfruit project started i want to say in 2010 but it you know we launched in 2015 and it took a good four years granted not every single day but um you know four years to find a source and develop a process because it's not anything that anyone had done before. At the time, you could only get jackfruit in a can. The can usually has uh, preservatives. It's loaded with sodium. You're shipping all that water weight and the weight of the can from you know, Southeast Asia. It just didn't really make a lot of sense. So I must have called every single company that was making those cans and tried to convince them, is there any other way that 
that we can buy this product from you? Can you put it in a 55-gallon drum or, you know, what, are, what other containers can you put this in? And no one was interested. Nobody took me seriously. Everybody was like, oh, you know, Americans don't want that much jackfruit. And I had tried to convince people, like, well, we'll take a container of it, you know, like, we'll commit to 100,000 pounds or 200,000 pounds. We'll invest in equipment. We'll do all these things. And it was a lot of silence back. I would really like to know how you actually developed your your production process and, and network. But before we do that, I would just like to hear what even gave you the idea of using Jackfoot? Because if we're talking 2010, if I remember correctly, it started exploding on social media around 2014-15. But back in 2010, I'm pretty sure that no one was putting up pictures of their recipes on on Facebook of what they were doing with Jackfruit. So how did you find out about it? We first tried it at a Nepalese restaurant in Madison, Wisconsin, of all places. They were serving it in a uh, traditional curry. We really enjoyed it and thought, what a unique ingredient. You know, it's a whole food. It's not wheat. It's not soy. And started to do a little bit of research online and we saw that there were a handful of other restaurants throughout the country and there were you know there were a couple recipes on different blogs and you know that's when we realized that there's no other way to get this other than from these tiny little cans and once you get the can typically you've got to slow cook it or marinate it you got to do all these things in order just to have a sandwich well you know we certainly wanted to be able to have that kind of product and we thought it would fit in with the seitan and our brand just you know being a clean simple product it would be great to have something that was more ready to eat you know pre-seasoned and was just as easy as opening the pack so that's kind of what got us thinking and obviously where where you looked was was east asia because do you know how popular green jackfruit is over there Yes, having visited many parts of the region, I can confirm that it is not popular at all. <laughs> I've seen it on on markets in Singapore and in Malaysia, and I've seen the really big ones that are probably like 30, 40, 50 pounds being sold. But a lot of them are sold when, when they're ripe, so when, when the fruit is sweet. I'm guessing they do use it in green form as well. I have never seen any restaurants, for example, using young jackfruit in Southeast Asia. The only place that I've visited where you can go out to just an ordinary restaurant that serves meat or, I mean, even the vegetarian restaurants is in Sri Lanka. It's still used and, and pretty widely available. In India, I know it's the number three crop, at least that was the figure that I heard last, but everywhere that I went, nobody was using it at any restaurants. I think it's somewhat common in more rural areas where they use it in curries, but certainly not in any of the major cities. You don't just go into the restaurant and they've got jackfruit on the menu. There might be kind of a negative association with it because I guess historically it's been more of a food for 
poor people, so it's kind of frowned upon for whatever reason. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I see how a meat alternative would be considered food for poor people at some point or in some cultures. But um, the way that things are moving, that, that's definitely going to be changing in the future. Yeah, I hope so. So, right now, okay, you you know that you would like to add jackfruit to, to your offer, and you know that the only thing that's available to you in, in the States is green jackfruit in, in cans, in, in brine, and with other additives thrown in. So how did you put your production together? What does it look like and how did you put that together? Well, we experimented with recipes with the cans just to kind of figure out what the end product was that we were trying to get. And, you know, we tried sourcing the fruit from a number of different countries and, and parts of the world. And, you know, technically it grows in Florida but there just wasn't enough fruit available to even, you know, have any kind of sustainable supply. So what is the sustainable supply? Because you were mentioning hundreds of thousands of pounds before. What's, just to get an idea of what that even means. I don't have an exact figure off the top of my head, but I mean, it's certainly containers upon containers a year. Yeah, just finding anybody that could do that was a challenge. You know, I mentioned India. We met with several companies in India. There, it's um, it's a very popular crop, but it's not highly cultivated. So I was meeting with pretty big international companies, and they were saying things like, well, we might need to bribe a forest ranger in order to get all the, the fruit that you need. That's probably not a business relationship that you would really want to pursue. I mean, at least if not, not if you're looking for something that's going to be long-term and, and reliable, if we're talking bribes right at the get-go. Yeah, that was not a road that I wanted to go down. And there were a lot of sort of wild goose chases in India that, uh, that we went on. And ultimately, we went with some partners in Thailand because the fruit is widely cultivated there. I don't have the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure they're the largest exporter of that that canned jackfruit in, in the brine. But even that, it, you know, it's it's more or less for export only. I think there's some traditional recipe that is only used like a couple times a year, and that's how it sort of entered the West, and nobody knew what was going on with it. So that was... That was part of the trouble that I had contacting those bigger companies. You know, for them, their biggest product might be coconut milk, and I'm calling about this jackfruit, and, you know, maybe they've seen a slight uptick in sales of what they're selling, and they just don't want to deal with me. So essentially what I had to do is get on a plane and travel all over India and Southeast Asia to meet with different factories that had the right kind of equipment because that was a big factor in the process, and then also be close enough to the supply, because there's a lot of issues with the fruit. You know, once it's picked, it only has a certain amount of time before you can still use it, and there's just there's just so much involved. It's not just like, you know, you're you're picking an apple off the tree, 
and you can just like keep it cool or something and it's gonna be good for months yeah jackfruit it ripens which doesn't necessarily make it bad it's just it can't be used for for cooking for what you're doing with it anymore yeah it took quite a bit of time to develop all those different techniques and processes to get it exactly how we want it i mean even though it's not that far removed from the can just kind of you know working backwards there was a lot that uh, needed to be figured out so right now is is a part of your production actually based in thailand i mean do do they yeah. season the jackfruit for you as well and and it just it gets to the states pretty much ready to be packaged yeah so we actually do every part of the process in thailand um we have a a partner there that we go and supervise and do everything from start to finish because it didn't make any sense to bring any of the raw materials here and pack them. It ends up being more freight cost. If that wasn't the original plan, you know, we really wanted to do more of it here, but once we learned about, you know, the nature of the the fruit itself and it just made the most sense to do everything there. Yeah, I see. And you launched that in 2015, which, like I mentioned before, is kind of when I think the um, the social media boom of jackfruit was beginning. Were were you behind that? I mean, did did you run any sneaky guerrilla campaigns to get the buzz going on on jackfruit to to coincide with your launch? Yes, we have an excellent publicist that worked very hard to get a lot of the press that we did you know not every article was necessarily in a focus on us specifically um, a lot of people were interested in the concept and again it's not something that you know as much as i'd love to claim that like we're the ones that invented this idea there were a lot of people using the fruit they were just using the cans and you know had different ideas with it so Uh, we were the first to launch it globally, but you know I don't want to make it sound like we're the only ones that ever thought to put barbecue sauce with with jackfruit. I wish I knew who that person was. I don't know if anyone is officially the inventor of that. If someone is and they're listening, um, get in touch just so we know. Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm assuming the initial reception of, of these jackfruit products was pretty good with with that media exposure that that you were getting yeah absolutely how are they comparing right now i mean is it jackfruit and, and seitan more or less equal or is is jackfruit the the majority of your sales right now well uh the jackfruit is growing at a at a much higher rate but the seitan has also been on the market for many more years so And there, you know, there are more skews of uh, of seitan right now than than jackfruit that are available in most places. So it's hard to say exactly what the split is, but you know, they're definitely giving each other quite a bit of competition. Which I'm guessing for you, since you produce both, is um, good in in either case. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be difficult with certain retailers because despite meat alternatives being you know experiencing a lot of growth and there's so much hype around vegan a lot of retailers only have a small amount of refrigerated space 
and for them, they might still be able to sell way more Greek yogurt than they can jackfruit or seitan. So even though their customers want jackfruit and seitan and they want all kinds of different flavors, at the end of the day, they're still not going to sell as much as whatever the other product is, if it's yogurt or milk or whatever cheese that has to go in that same refrigerated space. That's been a bit of a challenge. And then there's also the fact that, you know, a lot of buyers want to have a diverse lineup of brands within that space. Mm-hmm. So for for most of us, that usually means anywhere from, well, as little as four products on the shelf to as many as seven or eight. It just kind of depends on the space. Very few brands that I see on shelves have every single one of their products at every store. I think Tofurky might be the king of uh, having 25 facings <laughs> at a lot of their retailers, but space is definitely a challenge. Uh, do you see that improving? A little bit. It's just difficult. You know, I mean, there are more and more products every year. I know people are trying to make space. We have a couple of pilot programs with the Jackfruit because it is actually a shelf-stable product. It does not need refrigeration, but because consumers know our brand and know uh, the category, in that refrigerated case, that's where it's best merchandised. So what we've done is create some different racks or shippers that sit just outside of the refrigerated case, so it's in the same area, but not taking up space on the actual shelf. And we're hoping that that'll solve some of the problems, but you know, it'll, it'll take some time to see if that's effective or not. Yeah, that's an interesting situation that you're describing there with, with the shelf space available and the, the expanding market for meat alternatives or vegan products, because on, on the one hand, you have the demand that is definitely going up, which gives the, the retailers the incentive to increase the, the shelf space. But on the other hand, because demand is going up, you also have more brands entering the market and competing for that same shelf space. So I guess it's always kind of a question which which part of the equation is, is larger at, at a given moment. So I want to take it back just a little bit now and, and talk about the other thing that I mentioned in, in the intro, and that's the fact that Upton's Naturals is still an independently owned company and you never took any outside investments. So what, what was your main motivation for doing this? Well, in the beginning, the vegan product market was, was not exactly as booming as it is right now, even though it was, I mean, I guess we're going back 11, 12 years ago. I don't even think it was on the table. I mean, we could have potentially found friends or friends of friends, but it's not like today where you have all kinds of private equity and venture capitalist guys that are just looking to do whatever they can to, to get into you know, vegan food or natural food. Even just going to the bank to get something like an auto loan for the business was 
there just wasn't the same faith, there wasn't the same awareness in the market. We didn't really have much of a choice. And just thinking about, uh, even on a, on a lower level, of taking on a bunch of smaller partners, trying to manage those partners and, and dealing with everybody's opinions and, and all that, it just seemed not really worth it. There also wasn't even any kind of uh, crowdsourcing or any of the other online funding options that there are now. So I pretty much just had to figure out how to do it on my own. And, you know, as we grew and actually got retail placement early on, I would get people that would want to try to buy in. But it's it's never been enough to make me want to give up a piece of what we've built. Having started everything from nothing at all, basically, it would have to be a really great strategic partner that could take us beyond what I think we can do on our own. But uh, yeah, we just we just haven't really needed that. What benefits do do you see for running a business this way besides not having to negotiate all the partners or investors' expectations and differing? views of how the company should be run? I mean, outside of just having the ability to do whatever you want and not have to answer to other people, I, I can't really say. I mean, everybody's got a different goal when they start a business. Some people just want to build it as fast as they can and then sell it for millions of dollars and, and move on. For me, it was much more of a decision to just try to do something that I was interested in doing and thought would support uh, my own ideals, I guess, of, of veganism. So I really never even thought about becoming as large as it is today, and I certainly never anticipated that you know there would be all these other brands entering the market the way they have been. So I, I think it just comes down to you know, what kind of business model you want to have. I mean, it sounds amazing to just have people give you millions of dollars to play around with. It's, I'm sure it's less stressful, um, but I don't know. I've never done it. I think the downside really is that once someone gives you those millions of dollars to play with, it's not really to to play with. They They gave you their money and they expect to to get some sort of return on it so in a way you're not just working for yourself anymore at that point we get calls and emails not necessarily daily but certainly weekly from different groups and most of them have the objective of coming in trying to buy in at 20 30 percent and then have a plan to sell the company within five years. You know, I guess it just depends on what your personal goals are and what you want to do and what kind of timeline you're you're looking at. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if you have an exit strategy of your own plan or wishes for how an exit would look or even wishes for an exit, which obviously from what I'm hearing is not something that you've seriously considered because you're doing this because it aligns with, with your values and what you believe in. But if you do have 
exit plans, then yes, this this sort of taking on investment would work for you. But on the other hand, I know it's if if you're doing it like you're doing, how would you suggest that people approach a business to have it as successful as possible without taking on investments? Well, I guess the only other thing I'll, I'll say about the benefits of the slower growth and self-funding versus outside money and, and, and fast growth, I think the fact that you know we've been able to take it slowly and prove ourselves as a brand and have people develop a following to the products is also perhaps slightly more sustainable. Let's say you have a national launch overnight and you're really hot and then all of a sudden something happens and you're out. It's it's kind of like a fast rise and fall where I think if you're building with more, I don't know if sincere is the word, but more of like a, you know, an, an honest effort over time that maybe you'll, you'll develop a more loyal following than if, you know, you're just in and out. In terms of uh, advising people on how to not risk too much, I guess, and still be successful, I, I think people just need to do their own research on whatever the product is up front, you know, how many other people are doing it, what's going to make yours better, what kind of sales plan do you have, like where are you going to start? If you are going to invest some of your own money or a friend's or take out a credit card loan or whatever, just try to make sure that you're going to be able to pay that back and pay your bills. You know, in the beginning for me, I was still buying and selling furniture, like I mentioned. So, you know, I, I had no plans to make any money off of Satan uh, for years. And that's exactly what I did. You know, I just, I want to say the first two or three years, every single cent that we made went right back into the company. And even to this day, I still draw a, a pretty modest salary because I only want to keep putting money back into the business. If you don't have dreams of, you know, being some hotshot CEO with a BMW and, uh, you know, you're taking all these big vacations and you've got a, you know, a mansion in the suburbs or something, <laughs> figure out how you're going to pay for that, I guess, and still grow your business. Speaking of growing your business, to give some context to to what we just spent about an hour talking about, how big is Upton's right now? Sure. So we have... Uh, National distribution in you know throughout all 50 states. We're available in Canada, Australia, parts of Mexico. We just launched uh, in the UK and have some other uh, European customers coming on board soon. Because the jackfruit is made in Thailand, we actually have some other items that we started making there recently as well. It's been somewhat easy to manage inventory and space at our current facility, which is just under 10,000 square feet. But we're actually looking to move a number of uh, our other warehouses that we have, like third-party warehouses for the jackfruit, 
to Chicago. So we're looking at a building that is 42,000 square feet. Right. Apart from that, if I understand correctly, you also have a break room like a restaurant? Yes. So it's it's a tiny eight-seat cafe that's attached to the factory here in Chicago. It's been a good way for us to test products with the public. It's been a great way to interact with people that buy the product. And since we're a, a largely vegan staff here, you know, it also makes it easy to grab lunch. <laughs> yeah. On the topic of testing products, what are the future plans for, for Upton's Naturals? Well, uh, we just launched two shelf-stable mac and cheeses. We've got a bacon mac and then just a classic uh, mac and cheese. And then also four shelf-stable Thai meal kits. So we've got uh, a Masaman curry, a Pad CU, Thai curry noodle, and uh, Thai spaghetti. And for all of those, they're somewhat unique in the market. The mac and cheese is the only vegan, and I believe the only even conventional dairy mac and cheese that has a pre-cooked noodle and then a fluid sauce as opposed to a powder. I think there's only one other brand, uh, vegan brand, that has a fluid sauce, but they've got a, uh, a dry noodle. So this is like the easiest of Easy Macs that's available in the natural market. And the same thing with the uh, the meal kits. They all come with pre-cooked components, super easy to heat up in just less than a minute. And do those include jackfruit as well? They don't. We'll probably add some additional items that, that have jackfruit, but the Bacon Mac has our bacon seitan, and the Thai curry noodle also has some traditional seitan in it, and then the Masaman curry and the Patsy you have some tofu in there. Right. That was the Upton's Naturals part of the future question. I've got a personal future question for you. If you think five or 10 or 20 years ahead, what constitutes the best case scenario for the future of our planet for you? Very complicated. I mean, I'd, I'd love to think that you know, more and more people would would come to understand the benefits of of veganism, but I don't have a crystal ball. I hope that uh, I hope that more and more people just gain that consciousness of the benefits and and decide to to join the team. Yeah, I I hope so too. I mean, I I don't have a crystal ball. I just read the signs, and I think we are kind of moving in that direction. It doesn't seem like many people have any excuses left. I mean, I don't know how many more studies need to come out that that vegan is a great answer for a lot of issues, but people just get so hung up on their silly traditions, you know? I mean, I grew up eating pepperoni pizza and ice cream and cheesecake and whatever garbage hamburgers and... You know, it just kind of hit me, like, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. It was pretty easy to just flip the switch, and it's great that there are products like seitan and, and these jackfruits and, and all these products today, because 
if you want to stick with some of those familiar flavors and textures, that's great. You know, they make for an, a much easier transition. I mean, I don't think anybody should be planning to have jackfruit or seitan or tofu with every single meal every day, but, you know, it helps sort of broaden your horizons a little bit. Yeah, and I think a large part of the winning formula is also exactly what you are doing, just making these products more widely available and bringing a wider variety of flavors and textures and and meals that people can just pick off the shelf and and eat, make it more convenient for them to eat in this way. Yeah, I hope so. Perfect. And for that, then, I thank you very much and for for the time that you spent talking to me. So to finish this up, um, can you tell me what's the best way for people to get in touch with Uptons if they want to know more about the company, if they want to know if you have any job openings, if they want to come by and try what you're cooking up in, in your break room, or just follow you on, on social media to see what's happening? Sure, yeah. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, the best place for all of that would be just at uh, uptonsnaturals.com. So we've got uh, you know a section for the cafe on there and any job openings, new products, and of course social media as well. We're pretty active on uh, on Facebook and Instagram, so you'll always find something happening there. Okay, it's all going in the show notes. And right now, then, thanks again for sharing this and for doing what you do. Sure, thank you. All right, that was the founder and president of Upton's Naturals, Daniel Stackman, on episode 37 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. If you want to find out more about any of the things that we talked about, you know what to do. We take all the show notes for you, and as always, you can find them online if you go to theplantbasedentrepreneur.com forward slash show forward slash episode 037. On that website, you'll also find the link to Plant-Based Business Week. So if you haven't registered and reserved your spot for this event yet, go and register right now. We have a great lineup of speakers already confirmed with more coming on board. So this virtual conference is something you don't want to miss if you're in any way interested in vegan business, even if it's only as a consumer and end user because a lot of the speakers at this event are the people behind some of the biggest and most successful plant-based brands out there. And like I told you before, registration is completely free, so I'm looking forward to seeing you at Plant-Based Week in September. Now, if you have any questions on this event, or if you have any suggestions or comments about the podcast, please reach out to me directly by emailing jerry at theplantbasedentrepreneur.com because I always love hearing your feedback and about the ways that plant-based business and products are making a difference in your life. So that's it for today. I'll talk to you again next week. And until then, stay awesome. And remember, the future is plant-based. Plant-based.